please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time of the year as we prepare for your coming at Christmas. Lord, we thank you that that coming was not just a historical event in the past, but is something that we look forward to in your final coming in the flesh. May we be found in you, and may we be found ministers of your justice. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I was driving down the road this week, listening to 102.1, I think it was, one of the Christmas stations that's playing constant music. And at this particular time, they had, uh, <clears throat> they, were, they were playing also people's memories of Christmas. And uh, so, you know, you had a, you know, it's always fun because you have a, a grown man, you know, get on and say, I remember when I got so, this, this airplane and your remote control thing. And, you know, he goes on and talks about that. And, and then, you know, you have a, a grown woman get on and, and, and talk about her childhood experience at Christmas. And, you know, it got me thinking about some of those great memories we really have about Christmas morning. Um, and I got to thinking back to my own childhood. There were many of those moments. I want you to think with me right now about one of those moments in your past. What's one of the happiest Christmases you've ever spent? And think about who was there. And maybe it was a gift, or maybe it was just the experience of who was there. Do you have a, a thought in mind? And as great as that thought is, so much greater is the gift of the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what's being talked about today in the Old Testament reading. And as I was preparing the sermon for today, I kept coming back to the Old Testament reading, which is kind of a different one to be preaching on. You know, oftentimes we'll preach on the gospel, I'll talk about John the Baptist today. But I kept coming back to Isaiah. Look at the Isaiah reading with me. It's there in your bulletin, or if you have your Bibles with you, it's Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. It's a mesmerizing picture, isn't it? Begins for behold... I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And just stop right there for a minute before we get into the rest of it. Do you realize the emphasis that Isaiah is speaking in rejoicing? The third Sunday in Advent is all about rejoicing. Gaudete, rejoicing. Hope, rejoicing in what is to come. No less than three different times in these first couple verses of, verse of uh, chapter 65, Isaiah uses the Hebrew word gilah, gilah, which means to have joy or rejoice down in your very depths. Why? 
Why do we have, why do we have such joy? Well, we go on with the passage and we see what does God's new creation look like? And I just want to highlight three things today. Number one, we see instead of illness and death, health and life. Number two, we see instead of barren sterility and frustration, fruitfulness. And number three, we see instead of isolation, a closeness and an intimacy. Those are things that God's kingdom will bring that we don't see in their fullness right now on this dark earth. So let's look together at those, health and life. The first thing is something that people from every generation can identify with. Illness and death replaced with health and life. There's been a constant throughout the generations, and that's that illness does afflict us. As you can see, it's afflicting me at the moment. And maybe some of you, too, with colds and, and worse things, of course, right? Things that, that, that don't go away. Things that chronically afflict us. Things that bring sorrow and suffering. That's not part of the new creation. And of course, death, which we've all experienced. The loss of a loved one. That's not part of the new creation. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 20. No more shall there be in it, that is the new creation, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old. What's God saying to his people here? That in God's order of things, it's not right that newborns and children die. The saddest funerals that I've ever conducted, and I'm sure you've attended, have been the funerals of children. And there's just something profoundly wrong with the death of children, isn't there? You can't help but to leave puzzled and a little bit shaken even with the strongest of faith. And here we see that God himself is appalled by such death. That's not how it's supposed to be. Perhaps you've lost somebody young. I know just from talking to some of you that there are parents here that have lost children. Jesus says to you, that's not how it's supposed to be and that's not how it will be in the redemption of the world. And it's interesting that the verse doesn't stop there, but rather it continues on to talk about the fact that even the death of the aged is not something that God desires or wants. Even that's not something that is supposed to be part of his kingdom. Whereas our world increasingly sees old people, elders, as lacking use and worth, God goes on to say that the days of the old are precious in his sight too. And their health and life too will be redeemed 
and restored. Did you catch that? An old man, there will no longer be an old man who does not fill out his days, or the young man shall die at 100 years old. That's a long time. Hope, a new kingdom. Secondly, instead of barrenness and frustration, there will be fruitfulness in this new kingdom. One of the many parts of the curse that sin brings upon us is that we don't enjoy fully the fruit of our labor. Have you ever taken time to build something only to have it taken from you or destroyed? We've all probably experienced that as children, right? You build a beautiful sandcastle on the street and then your sibling comes and kicks it over. I know I have. I did that, right? I mean, that's a silly thing, but how does that feel, right? You've put your all into something and then it's taken away from you in a moment. Or perhaps in adult life, perhaps it was a business or a project that you were swindled out of. Or perhaps your coworker took the credit for the thing that you had worked so hard to build and you lost out. That's not part of God's kingdom either. Look at verse 21 and 22. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. What would it be like to purely enjoy the work of your hands free of frustration and barrenness? Free that someone out from the idea that someone else will come and take part of it. Or all of it. These things do happen naturally in our fallen world, but there are worse things too. <clears throat> there are things, excuse me, there's things spiritually that are taken from us as well. You see, as being part of a fallen people, part of a sinful people, we not only have things stolen from us, from other people, but we're driven to want justice where it's not. And yet, in Leviticus, the Old Testament law, God promises that there will be a lack of justice right now because we spurn his commandments. This is Leviticus chapter 26, verse 15. If you spurn my statutes and your, and your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever, and consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. So what's going on right now historically with God's people and Isaiah is that they have abandoned God. They've spurned his ways, they despise his rules. They've gone after other gods. And therefore, God is using these injustices to bring them back to him. And certainly, sometimes, 
that is the bigger point to bring us back to him. This is certainly the case in the Hebrew people's time, but it also remains true for you and I. If we spurn God's covenant, abhor his laws, then we take ourselves outside his gracious protection and we squander the inheritance of hope. And that's not what we're supposed to do. But even for those that do that, even for we sinners, there is hope because the recreated kingdom will come forth anyway. You see, there's a promise of God's unstoppable kingdom in this passage. Look at verse 23. It starts, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my mountain, says the Lord. So there's a promise here, and this is the gospel, this is the grace, that even though we turn away from God and spurn his commandments, we will be, we are desired by God. God desires to have us back with him, which takes us to the third point, that no longer will there be isolation, but rather closeness. In God's kingdom of hope, there won't be isolation, there won't be loneliness, there won't be things that <clears throat> isolate us from each other and from God. Have you ever felt far from God? Do you ever feel like he's far away? Have you ever felt that about another person? Do you ever feel alone and trapped in yourself? This is not part of the new creation. And God promises it. God promises that no longer will you feel isolated, but close to him. And we see a seed of that promise revealed in the Holy Spirit being within us. That we can't run from God. We can't, though we might feel far from him, he's never far from us. That self-perception that's broken by sin is to be restored. You know, even some of the great saints felt isolated from God. If you read the works of St. Augustine of Hippo back in the, third, or the fourth century, or even more recently, Mother Teresa, we'll see that often that perception of closeness to God or farness, distance from God, um, rears its ugly head in the lives of the saints, in their prayer lives. Their sorrow and pain also needs to be removed. And that's part of God's promise too. So we see that sorrow and pain, those things that separate us from God and blind us to one another, are removed in his kingdom. And not by our own doing, but by his. Pastor Ortland writes of this passage, God is so eager, he's being, he's being found by people who aren't even longing for him. Think about that. God is so eager, 
that he's being found by people that aren't even longing for him. That's the story that's going on here in Isaiah. And honestly, that's the story of every individual. God seeks us even when we don't seek him. God reaches out to us even when we're not reaching out to him. That's why this time of year is so important. Because it's once again a time where we reach out with the gospel, with the action of Jesus, broadcasting that idea that Jesus came into the world, Jesus invaded our space, even when we weren't asking for it. And you might be thinking, well, I have a hard time seeing those glimpses of hope right now. You might be thinking, I struggle to see the kingdom, and part of it is because I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, yes, yes, it's true. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't write all these things immediately. But at least we have that seed of hope because we know how things end. Scholar and commentator Oswald writes, Although we do not yet enjoy the promise to the full, we may experience the promise of God's new creation in embryo. For the believer must know that nothing is in vain in God. We may still weep. We may still have failed hopes, blighted dreams, and lost children. But we do not work for ourselves. We work for God. And when that is the case, we may know that he who's telling our story is catching every tear in his bottle and will use even our sorrows to accomplish his good. So we know that we're not alone, and so we know that we don't sorrow for no reason, and so we take hope. Friends, our call is to live in the hope of Christ. Live in it. When others wonder why you're so hopeful, tell them. That's all evangelism is. That's all sharing Jesus is. And yet, if you're not living in it, how can you turn around and tell people, follow me? If you're walking around all despondent and in sorrow, without any hope, why would anybody follow you and me? Live in the hope of Christ, precisely because that's where we are in this season, and that's who you are in Jesus. It's not superficial. It's not happy, clappy. It's not that we don't suffer. Don't hear that. But it's that we know the one who redeems everything and will make all things new. Think back to that greatest Christmas memory that you thought of at the beginning of the service, beginning of the sermon. What was it? The best is yet to come. Remember that. When all will be redeemed. That is our hope. Amen.